Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Our Holy Father, we need your incredible grace for you've called us to invest this vapor well, looking not simply to the things of this world, but the things that are above. And so as we bow in your holy presence this morning, renew our minds and our hearts and speak to us. I pray in all that happens on this campus today, in these services, in the Iwana ministry tonight, that your name would be made great in our presence, that Christ our Lord would be glorified, that the Spirit would lift him up in every respect. Now use me in the same way. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Revelation chapter 22, the last book, the last chapter of the Bible. This book opens with one of seven beatitudes that are found in the Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. It's a pretty amazing challenge. This is the only book that has this challenge that basically says, read me, I'm special. And if you read me and heed what I say, you will receive a special blessing. Now, I know I've been refreshed as we've been working through the Revelation, especially the future home that God has prepared for us called the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, and many other names. Now, when you open the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, you find yourself in the Garden of Eden. When you come to Revelation 21 and 22, you find yourself in the garden paradise of a new city that will someday just become the capital of a brand new heaven and earth. There are many names given to it. God compares this coming new Jerusalem to a bride because it's the place where his beloved bride will indeed meet the Lord God. Behold, I am making all things new. It's done. Those are the words from Revelation 21. I'm making all things new. It's finished. It's done. In many ways, that really summarizes the two chapters that we are in this morning. Now, the place that we are headed today is beyond belief. It is absolutely incredible. And one of these days, the trumpet of God will sound, and Christ will catch up his people, and we will meet the Lord God. Now, I know there are people today who mock us, who say, yeah, it's just pie in the sky when you die. Well, I happen to like pie, and I'm looking forward to the dessert someday. And they say, yeah, you believers, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. The fact is, is that most Christians today are so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. And so God tells us, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. It's not your treasure that God wants. He wants you. He wants your heart. And so God is giving us a picture of heaven in these chapters so that we might be changed as we look at the things above. Now, we're going to focus just on verses 13 through 15 today, but to give us a running start, I want us to begin reading in verse 10. Follow along, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, we've covered a lot of ground so far, but let me, especially for many new people, but also for the benefit of us all, because I want us to be able to think through this whole book by the time we're done, Let's think about the broad context and then the immediate context. The book opened as we saw the glorified Christ ruling and reigning in heaven and all of his magnificence. 
That was chapter 1. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we saw Christ speak to seven churches, seven churches in which he presents many challenges and a number of rebukes. And in many ways, they represent churches throughout the church age until Jesus comes. Then in chapter 4, we followed the raptured church up into heaven, and we saw the first, and we listened to the first songs of heaven where hundreds of millions of believers, along with hundreds of millions of angels, burst into song around the throne of God. Chapter 5, the scroll is handed to Christ. He begins to open it. And we saw first in chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They come trotting across the earth, bringing God's judgments that unfold in 21 different sealed, trumpet, and bold judgments. And then, if you remember in chapters 6 through 16, that is unfolded in great detail, this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. We have witnessed oceans being turned into blood and demons literally, physically, actually being thrown down to the earth during this time. But we have also witnessed unprecedented conversions, where in many respects, the Great Commission for the first time will be totally fulfilled that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, will hear the gospel, and across the planet, people will believe. We saw millions of Christians who stand for their faith, even if it means beheading. They will not be able to eat or buy anything unless they are willing to take the mark of the beast. And then we saw through the seven bold judgments, the Antichrist empire begin to crumble. He boldly, brazenly, foolishly opposes the living God. And then in chapters 17 to 18, we saw a brief respite so we could see the capital city of the Antichrist during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's called Babylon, which is a code word for Rome in the Bible. And we saw that it was the place of a one-world economy, but also a one-world religion. In chapter 19, we saw Jesus coming back from heaven. We saw the false prophet and the Antichrist literally actually being thrown into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. In chapter 20, we saw how the devil, during the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth, will be restrained as Christ rules and reigns on the earth. And we saw some of the reasons that God will literally have his son rule on the earth. We looked at a number, and we saw that, yes, he could have just ended it and taken us straight to heaven and but he doesn't. He has a purpose. And if you weren't here for that message, you need to listen to it. But we also saw that those who survive the great tribulation period, who will enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies, who will live like the people during the days of Noah, long extended periods of life, and they will be able to reproduce and have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And yet with Christ ruling on the earth from Jerusalem in a perfect world, not all will receive him as Lord. And the devil at the end of the thousand years will reign up, raise up an army of rebels that are likened, the Bible says, to the number of the sand on the seashore. And then Christ will literally end it. He will bring fire down from heaven. Satan will then be thrown into the place where the false prophet and the Antichrist are still very much alive because hell is real. You're not annihilated in hell. They're still there, and Satan is then there. And then we saw the great white throne judgment where all the dead are raised of all time, all the unbelieving dead, and brought before the throne of God. And then as we came into chapters 21 and 22, after the destruction of the present heaven and earth, God makes a brand new heaven and earth. And the new Jerusalem literally, actually, physically comes down of heaven and becomes the capital city of what we might all call heaven. Now, that's the broad context. Let me tighten it. Let's review, review briefly so we know where we're going today. In verse 10, John is instructed by God's angel, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. It's an interesting command because we saw last time it's the exact opposite of what God told Daniel the prophet in Daniel 12.4. Let me refresh your mind. But it's for you, Daniel. Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. He's told to conceal those words until the end of time. 
It doesn't mean that the message is hidden, but simply that it will be later revealed in its fullest meaning. However, he's also told that this will take great precedence during the time of the Great Tribulation. And so we saw almost an identical quote in Daniel 12, 2, that Jesus mentions in the Olivet Discourse, that there's a time coming in Israel's history and in world history like they've never seen, an unprecedented time in human history. And it will be during this time that people will, in its fullest sense, understand the book of Daniel. The Jewish people, his people, that's the focus there in the 12th chapter, the Jew. The Hebrew people will read Daniel like never before, as will Gentiles. And we're told in verse 4, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, we've said that some have uh, argued that this phrase means, well, you know, people will be able to travel throughout the world and they'll have knowledge at their fingertips like the internet, and that's just ridiculous. If you want to be dramatic and preach the Bible in dramatic ways to fill seats, you can do that, but that's not the meaning of Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. It is knowledge that people will be running back and forth for. And so we looked at four Old Testament passages, if you remember, that we saw to go back and forth, to dash about, depending on your translation, meant to search for something. And people will be searching for answers like never before. They'll have the book of Daniel, but they'll also have the book of Revelation that will open up for many the book of Daniel. Today, most people have no idea what's in the book of Daniel. Most Jewish people I meet don't have any idea what's even in the book of Daniel. And most Gentiles, beyond the fiery furnace and a few things like that, Daniel and the lion's den, they they have little understanding of the book. But at the end of time, they're going to understand so much more. It's going to be like history unfolding before their eyes. It will be almost like reading the newspaper. And so John's given the opposite advice. Why? Because we live in a different age. We can read and understand since Pentecost what was sealed up in Daniel. But it's at the end of time when the Jew will be pouring over it because one of the functions, as we saw, of the Great Tribulation will bring Israel to repentance. And so in verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy. Why? Because the time is near. We live in a time of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Nothing since the day of Pentecost is needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come. A lot has to happen for the second coming. Israel has to be in place for the second coming, but not for the rapture. But the fact that Israel is in place in these days reminds us that the rapture is that much closer. And then, of course, he reminds us in verse 11, because Jesus is coming quickly, once the events start, it will happen very fast. He says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. It's a solemn warning to those reading the Revelation that your decision will determine your character, and in the end, your character will determine your eternal destiny that those who suddenly meet Jesus at the rapture of the church will have their destiny sealed. Those who do wrong will continue in their wrong. And the flip is true, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still stay holy. People will have no idea it will happen so fast. People who have heard the gospel in power and clarity before the rapture, 2 Thessalonians 2 teaches, will not be saved during the tribulation. The people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are converted during this period of time are people who have never, ever heard before. And so when you are saved, you are declared righteous. You are eternally holy. And so God wants us to work out our salvation, not work for it, but to work it out once we are saved with fear and trembling. So there's a warning here. It's a sobering thought to reject God's warning, the fact that Jesus is coming quickly, suddenly, without notice, imminently, that if we are not ready, 
You will have fixed your character for all of eternity when it happens. So he says in verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, notice, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, according to this context, the return of Jesus will be a mixed blessing. For some, the reward will be horrible for those who are fixed in filthiness. But for those whose character has been declared righteous and holy, it will be a time of great blessing. And throughout the Scripture, God says, for both the believer and the unbeliever, we will be judged according to our deeds. We read in Revelation 20 and verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and the dead were judged. How? According to their deeds. He says it again in verse 13 of Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Death here, of course, is a synonym for the grave. Death has the body, and Hades has the soul. And how are they judged? Again, according to their deeds. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 16. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and will repay every man how? According to their deeds. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 2. Verse 6, that God will render to each person according to their deeds. Now remember, God is not weighing the good works and the bad works. These are the great white throne judgment. The only people present are unbelievers. The fact that they are judged according to their deeds we saw was for two reasons. Really to highlight the justice of God and showing that they were lost. Listen, when you are born from above... Your life changes, and this world is filled with people who say they are born again. Beth Moore, I hope she's born again, but she came out this week endorsing Jen Hatmaker, who believes in gay marriage. Listen, I've never let her teachings or workbooks in this church, and now we're seeing her true colors. Listen, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. And so there are two reasons the lost man is judged by his works. Number one, it will show his loss. His fruit will be that of a lost man. But secondly, lost men are judged according to their deeds because while hell is an awful place in all of its general descriptions for anyone who goes there, it's not the same for everyone who goes there. Everyone in hell will be miserable, but not all people will be equally miserable. And we saw that somehow in the perfect justice of God, there are degrees of punishment. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. It will be a time of blessing in that the believer will also stand before judgment, not the great white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And God will reward us according to our faithfulness throughout all of eternity. Now, that's the groundwork. Let's jump to verse 13, where John begins to describe this coming heavenly kingdom. Two truths are highlighted there, as you can see in your note-taking outline. First, those who are included in the heavenly kingdom. Let's think about those who are included in this coming heavenly kingdom. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, this is the third and final time found here in the book of Revelation where we find a member of the Trinity saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, let's review this for a moment. Hold your finger here. Don't lose this. And turn all the way back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 for just a moment. Listen, every believer needs to be able to defend the deity of Christ. If a JW shows up at your door this week, my wife and I were in another city of a million people, and they were all over the sidewalks all week long. I was doing a pastor's conference. She was doing a women's conference. And, you know, they have their little New World translation. But you can show them, even out of their New World translation, how uh, they have a distorted and warped view of the Lord Jesus. Here in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, after the prologue to the letter, we're giving a vision, if you remember, of the glorified, exalted, and ascended Messiah who's in heaven. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, 
the Almighty. Now, if you're using a red-letter edition of the Bible, then you will see these words are in red, and rightly so. Why? Because this is a description of Jesus' own words. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega, the last letter. In English, he'd be like saying, I am the A to the Z. Jesus is saying, I'm the first, the last. And remember, in the context of Revelation 22, which we're studying today, it's in reference to his coming again. Jesus is saying, I am the sovereign alphabet. I am the first and the last source of all knowledge and all truth. So what I am saying about my return, you can bank on it, and no one can change it. He is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And so we are not being deceived or in what he is saying cannot be disputed or discredited because the one speaking is the one who is and who was and is to come. Now, where did we see those words? Look up the page a few verses to verse 4, Revelation 1 and verse 4. Now God the Father is speaking. Notice what God the Father says. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace who is from him, God the Father, contextually, who is and who was and who is to come. Identical words in verse 4 are used of God the Father that God the Son takes to his own lips in verse 8. Again in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Both the Father and the Son are properly titled the Lord God because as Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is, he was, he will always be because Jesus is the eternal, ever-present God the Son in human flesh. And just as the Father says in verse 4 that he is who is to come, even so in verse 8, Jesus is who is to come. It's so interesting when you look at the different functions of the Godhead many times, you will see them all identifying with the same function. So who gives spiritual gifts? You say the Holy Spirit does. Yes, he does. He is certainly highlighted. But so does God the Father in uh, the book of Romans chapter 12. And so does God the Son in Ephesians 4. Who's coming again? Every member of the Trinity is coming again. And so even the Father speaks of his return. And so Jesus is also the Almighty. By the way, that term, the Almighty, is used throughout the Old Testament of Yahweh, of God the Father, of Jehovah God. He is the Almighty. It means he holds everything together. He is absolutely all-powerful. And so the same name and the same title is given of God the Father. Why? Because they are equal. And so the message of the book is that Jesus also is the Alpha and the Omega. He's everything from A to Z. And for the world, it's terrifying news if they really understood it. Because when he comes again, he is coming to reward men with judgment according to their deeds. But for the believer, it's great news. It's glorifying news. We just sang it from our hearts about Jesus coming back again. Now turn to Revelation chapter 21. Go to 21. We're in 22. So just go up to chapter 21 for a moment. Revelation 21, this is the second occurrence of the phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We studied it several weeks ago back in Revelation 21 and verse 6. Let me pick it up in verse 5. It's Father God, the Father who is speaking, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. The Father is saying, I who cannot lie am delivering you this eternal everlasting truth. There's a new order. You can count on this because my promises are all faithful. They are all true. Now notice what the Father says in verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And the one speaking is the same person in verse 5, namely God the Father, who now says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Listen, this is powerful, because when you deal with these cults or these liberal theologians, 
And they say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He claims it over and over and over again, and the Bible claims it in so many different ways, either by function, by title, or by direct statement. And the Greek alphabet here is interpreted, the alpha and the omega, as what? The beginning and the end. In other words, if human existence depended on human knowledge and human history, then God would have the whole thing in his hand. He's the beginning and the end. Nothing has happened before me. Nothing will happen after me. Now, don't forget, this is the same expression that we're going to see Jesus use in our passage today. I will give, notice what the Father promises here in verse 6, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Now, of course, he's not speaking to physical thirst here, but spiritual thirst in the context. And by the way, this function that is attributed to the Father here is also attributed to the Son in the Gospels. And again, if they're equal, you would expect that. Remember John 7, on the last day of that great feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But these things he spoke concerning the Spirit was not yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So God the Father, who is inseparable from God the Son, both promise a spiritual inner satisfaction that only they can bring. And some of you today are looking for meaning in life. And some of you who've been saved, you've stopped focusing on the Lord and you're finding meaning in other things and you're coming up empty every time. Listen, only the Father, only the Son, and only the Spirit who actualizes this can give you that deep satisfaction from within. And notice, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life, how? Without cost. The Net Bible renders it free of charge. The ESV says, without payment. You can't earn or buy this thing we call eternal life. The cost has already been paid in full, as this text will underscore before we're finished today, through the blood of the Lord Jesus. He has paid for it. And since he paid for it, he can offer it, and the Father can offer it, it as well. Here God is promising that in heaven you will have the deepest spiritual satisfaction, just like Jesus said, you can have it today here on earth. Because Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. God is saying, every thirst, every longing, I want to fulfill. Now, let's go back to our verse here this morning, Revelation 22 and in verse 13. Jesus is speaking with that backdrop, think your way through this verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's what God the Father just said of himself in Revelation 21 and verse 6. He said, I am the first and the last. That's what Isaiah 41 and verse 4 says of God the Father. The beginning and the end. Again, that's Revelation 21, 6, where the Father says that of himself. I hope you're not missing the incredible interplay of titles, of claims, of designations, and of ministries, because the members of the Godhead are inseparable. And we could argue, because the text does not do it, we could equally argue the same for God the Holy Spirit. So there's great ramifications for these verses, even for the most quoted verse in the Bible. If to see the Son is to see the Father, if that makes them inseparable, that really sheds a lot of light on John 3.16, does it not? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Or verses like Romans 5.8, but God, a reference to the Father, demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever asked yourself how the cross is a demonstration of the Father's love? Listen, if Jesus were only a man, as the cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses teach, as liberal theologians, we have churches in our county who say he is only a man. Listen, if that were true, then... How do you understand a verse like John 3.16 or Romans 5.8? How on earth 
Could God giving his son be a demonstration of his love? Phil Donahue, a talk show host back in the 70s, mocked Jerry Falwell, who was being interviewed that day, and he said, well, if God the Father loved the world so much, why didn't he climb out of heaven and die for us? The fact is, is that it would be zero evidence that the Father loved us unless the Father and the Son are equal and inseparable. And so in the doctrine of the Trinity, unlike T.D. Jakes, who says he's a oneness Pentecostal, He says, the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Father, the Father becomes the Spirit. They just change roles. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible affirms that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, and they are absolutely inseparable. And so the cross can only be a demonstration of the Father's love if they are so completely one. So all three titles here, the Alpha, the Omega, The first and the last, the beginning and the end, are used interchangeably of both the Father and the Son. And again, other passages could affirm the same of God the Holy Spirit. So by the titles that Jesus applies to himself, that you could only apply to God the Father, leaves you one of three possibilities. He's either crazy, he's a conniver, or he's the Christ of God. To claim to be God in human flesh, to make himself equal to the Father, and to be only a man, then he was crazy, or he was an evil conniver, a con man of sorts, or he is indeed the Christ of God. But listen, the things he taught, the miracles he performed, the prophecies he fulfilled, and ultimately, miracle of all miracles, the resurrection, all affirm the fact that he is more than a man, but he is God in human flesh. But when you meet someone like these JWs I met on the street, and they like rotated every three hours. And so we'd come out, we'd have a break, and there'd be a new set there. And I would ask them some questions all over again. But thank God I met one dear lady whose heart was so open, who is really searching. Listen, people are in cults for one of two reasons. Either they heard the truth and rejected the truth, so they believe a lie, or they're searching for the truth, and that cult got to them first. But this nonsense that you say, well, Jesus is just a great teacher, just a great prophet, just another moral leader, does not jive with what God has said in Scripture. He is, either as the third century argument uh, polemic gave, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He's either a deceiver, deceived, or he is deity, He's either a conniver, he's crazy, or he is the Christ. Verse 13 means he is either a deluded blasphemer or an absolute liar, or he is the eternal son of God. Look again, it plainly affirms. Jesus said, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now remember, these titles are given in the context of his authority to judge in verse 12. Don't miss the context, that's why we set it up. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. For centuries, rabbis, you can read it in the Mishnah, the Talmud, have said that God is the beginning, the middle, and the end. Since he's the beginning, he's received his power from no one. Since he's the middle, he has shared his power with no one. And since he's the end, he'll never hand it over to anyone. And so I want you to see now what verse 14 says in terms of getting into the kingdom. Look at verse 14. Remember, Jesus is coming to judge. He is going to judge men according to their deeds. How does he have the authority to judge? Verse 13, because he's God the Son And it's in that context we understand verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. So Jesus here in verse 14, this, by the way, is the seventh and last beatitude found in the Revelation. He's giving the final blessing, the ultimate blessing, And that is for one to enter into the city, the new Jerusalem, and also to eat from the tree of life. Now, this coming city, it's the place right now, if you drop dead in that seat, if you know Jesus, it's where you will go. It's called by many names in Scripture. And remember, it's just the capital city 
of a new earth. It's called the Father's house in John 14. Paul refers to it as the third heaven, and we explained how it was different from the first and second heaven earlier on in our book, Study of Revelation. It's called the paradise of God, paradisios. It's used not only to describe Old Testament righteous Sheol, but also now the new place where believers go since the ascension. It's called the kingdom of God, and it's called the kingdom of God and of Christ. Both titles that are used in Scripture. Those are important titles. And so this morning we're talking about the coming heavenly kingdom. When you read that title, you might have thought, well, is Pastor Carl talking about the Messiah's kingdom on the earth? What is he referring to? No, I'm speaking about heaven this morning. That's the context. That's one of the names given, heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's called the Holy City. And so this city, the holy city, is a reference to the kingdom of God and of Christ. Someone called me on the Bible line this week. It was a good question. They wanted to know what precisely is the kingdom of God. And so remember, there are four aspects to the kingdom of God as they're unfolded in Scripture. Broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is his right to rule. That God is really the one who is over this world, who is running this world. So, for instance, in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Nebuchadnezzar, I preached a sermon once on the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. He comes to reality, and then he says in Daniel 4, 34, for his dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So the Bible is crystal clear in passages like Romans 13 and verse 1, that every authority that exists is established by God. So in one sense, the kingdom of God is that God rules this world. He is over everything. That's one broad expression. On the other hand, more narrowly speaking, Not only does he rule over all, but he has a spiritual rule in the hearts of those who are willing to submit to him. That's another use of the kingdom of God. And so the first word out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry was repent. Repent, why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. So the kingdom of God is also spiritual, And so Jesus could say as he stood before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And he preached that to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so in Luke 17, 21, it says the kingdom of God is within you. And of course, it's only possible for you to enter the kingdom of God if you've been born twice. Unless you are born of water, that's your first birth. And of the spirit, that's your second birth. You will never enter, you will never see. He will say later in that chapter, the inside of the kingdom. So there's a spiritual dimension to be a part of God's kingdom. So in the broadest sense, God is seated on his throne. He is ruling from above. And so we've already studied from Revelation 3, 21. Jesus says to the church there, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down today, right now, as he speaks with my Father on his throne. So broadly speaking, God with Christ is ruling over everything. But spiritually speaking, he's ruling right now in the hearts of people. So Paul can say in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness. It is right now, today, righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. But someday... As Jesus taught in the model prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer. I don't care what you call it. He will literally rule upon the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ instructed us to pray that truth. And when you pray that, you are praying for the coming kingdom of Messiah. It's promised throughout the Old Testament. And it is, again, affirmed in the New Testament that Jesus' kingdom will literally someday come to the earth. So in Revelation 20, in verse 6, we studied blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. He will literally reign for a thousand years. The concept of Christ ruling on the earth is not a New Testament concept. It's echoed through about a dozen prophets in the Old Testament. But the length of it is revealed to us here in the New Testament. And by the way, that's a refreshing verse to my heart. Because no matter how difficult circumstances in this world may be, no matter how dejected and despised God's people may perceive of themselves as others criticize them, Jesus is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is in absolute control this morning, and someday we will triumph, we will overcome, and this whole world will see it, and Jesus will be glorified. But there's another way in which the kingdom is used, and that is in reference to heaven. And so we're speaking this morning about the coming heavenly kingdom, about the fact that someday people will be led into heaven who know the Lord. Jesus used it in that context in Mark 10. He said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And by the way, the term the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is used interchangeably. They, they don't have two different meanings. And so in the parallel passage where on the same day he's addressing the same subject, he said in Matthew 19, 14, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God, but here the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So back here in verse 14, God is making it crystal clear who is going to be included in that coming kingdom in the holy city. Look again at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter, circle that word enter. We just talked about you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God and may enter by the gates into the city. Only those who have washed their robes by faith in the blood of the Lamb will enter into this city. Now, please understand, this verse is not teaching that you're saved by how well you wash your robes. It has nothing to do with works. It's habitually in the Revelation and in the rest of Scripture connected to the work of the Lamb. And so he is speaking specifically of those who have washed their robes. Now, the King James reads a little bit differently. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have a right to the tree of life. And, of course, they had limited textual uh, available to them. Uh, this part of the Revelation, they were using the Latin Bible. They didn't have a Greek text. But it doesn't really change anything because one translation is putting the emphasis on the means, the other on the result, because if you are saved, you will be changed. But remember, he's not talking about how well you wash your robes. Remember what we read back in Revelation 7? There's 144,000 Jews in that chapter who are saved. They'll be preaching the gospel like it's never been preached before. They'll be indestructible. The seal of God, someone could take a shotgun and try to blow a man's head off, but if they're one of the 144,000 Jews, they are indestructible. And you see this great multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. People say today, oh, we're getting close to the end because, you know, we're getting the gospel out to the whole world. Well, not really. We got a long way to go. That doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and do nothing. But in the context when Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must go to the whole world, and there's a good example of the kingdom. This gospel of the kingdom must go to the whole world, and then the end will come. It's in reference to his second coming. It's in reference to what will happen. He's describing in that verse the great tribulation period. And what the book of Revelation elucidates in Revelation 7 and verse 14 to be the 144,000 who preach the gospel. And these who are saved have what? Washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. So the idea of being cleansed is connected to the blood of the Lamb. Now, I know in our mindset, it may seem like, uh, how do you make your robes white with blood? How do you make something clean with blood? 
And that may be a little bit of a foreign uh, thought to us, but it's certainly not to the readers of the New Testament, especially if you're a Jewish Christian. Remember the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9? There the writer says, all things are cleansed with blood. Or God promised through Moses in Exodus 12 and verse 13, when I see the blood, he's talking about the Passover, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land. The Scriptures, Old and New Testament, often speak of blood. Why? Because as Leviticus 17 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, when we think of blood, we may immediately think of death, But in the Hebrew mind, while they would associate it with death, they would also associate it with life and with purity. And so in Romans 5 and verse 9, it says we are justified, how? By his blood. And therefore, he says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God that is going to come. In Ephesians 1 and verse 17, it says we have redemption, how? Through his blood. When Paul writes to church at Coloss, He says that Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. And the book of Revelation opened in Revelation 1-5 with the words, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And so when it speaks of washing their robes, it's not talking about some work they have done. There's only one way to get your robes washed, and it's through the blood of the Lamb. I meet people who will tell me, well, I'm a die-in-the-wool Baptist, or I'm a die-in-the-wool Methodist, or I'm a die-in-the-wool Catholic, or I don't care what you are. If you're not died in the blood of Christ, it doesn't do you any good. There's only one way to be saved, and it is through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Had there been another way, God would have taken it. God never would have allowed his son to have died there on Golgotha. Look again at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, I'm often asked, is this a literal tree or a figurative tree? Does this tree actually exist or does it just symbolize something? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, it did literally exist, and yes, it does symbolize something. Now, unless God uses a metaphorical expression or a figure of speech or he says words like it's like this or it's such and such, you take the, the rules of Hebrew and Greek and you just literally interpret it. Some have suggested this is not a literal tree. Look, the amillennialists of our day who are largely in the Reformed camp, who teach replacement theology, they don't know what to do with the book of Revelation. Calvin wrote a commentary in every book of the Bible except Revelation because he was so baffled by it. And he should have been because he had a faulty uh, eschatology to start with. They don't know what to do with a tree like this. Listen. The rules of Greek and Hebrew grammar imply that we just literally interpret it. That's what the context implies, and that's what the rest of Scripture implies, whether you're in Genesis 2 or Revelation 22. Remember back in (coughs) Revelation 2, Christ is speaking to the church at Ephesus. Listen to Ephesus, listen to these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, because all believers will overcome, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what God once brought to a conclusion and forbade man to participate in, here in Revelation 2 and verse 7, Christ invites people to participate in. The next to the last mention of the tree of life in the Bible, we studied it a few weeks ago. If you look back on the page at 22 and verse 2, here in Revelation 22, verse 2, in the middle of its street, talking about the New Jerusalem, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nation. Now remember, when Adam sinned, access to this tree was lost. 
Let me dust off your memory. Then the Lord God said in Genesis 3, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, that's the tree we're talking about, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at, the east of the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if Adam had passed the test of obedience and had eaten from the tree of life originally, it wasn't magic. It was just a choice he would have made in his mind. He would have been forever sealed in the perfection that God created him with, and therefore everyone downstream of Adam. But had he now eaten from the tree of life, he would be like a condemned angel, unredeemable. His status would be forever fixed where God could not save him. So God in his mercy placed armed guards, cherubim. In Hebrew, there's a singular, a dual, and a plural. This is a dual. And so if you have a children's Bible that showed two holy angels with a flaming sword of Bible, someone was reading the Hebrew text. And again here in Revelation 22 and verse 2, in the middle of the street on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for what? For the healing of the nations. So I told you, I, what I picture here is this boulevard with a, a river running down the center, and then on either side is this double-trunked tree called the tree of life. And and it produces fruit every month. We have already underscored and learned from the revelation that contrary to one hymn we sometimes sing, there is time in heaven. God marks time. And so there'll be fruit every single month. Occasionally, I'm asked in the Bible line, will we eat in heaven? The best answer I can give is yes, we will eat, but we won't need to eat. (laughs) And you won't get fat, ladies, in case you're concerned. Jesus in his resurrection body enjoyed food. The angels with Abraham ate food, and we will eat at a great banquet called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we have underscored already that this tree is for the healing of the nations. Emotionally, mentally, physically, in every sense, it will be given for enjoyment. Remember, there's no sickness of any kind in heaven, and God is underscoring that. As he is our security, people sometimes ask, well, if Satan fell from heaven, couldn't we fall from heaven after we get there? And it's like God is just kind of giving a double affirmation. No, you'll eat even to save people from the tree of life. And of course, security is not found in a place, it's found in a person in the work of Christ. So those are those who are included. Now, it doesn't mean I'm coming to point two that I'm just halfway. I'm 95% done, so stay with me. Let's talk about those who are excluded, those who are excluded from the heavenly kingdom. Look now, if you will, at verse 15, verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, based on what we studied in Revelation 21 and verse 8, to be outside has been to already be confined to the lake of fire. Look back at 21 and verse 8. It's a similar list. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the list here of those who are outside the new Jerusalem are those who are in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Now this list in 21.8 is a little bit different from the list that we're reading here in chapter 22 and verse 15, because both lists are representative lists. They're not exhaustive lists. Look how verse 15 begins. Outside are the dogs. Now, there are two words in Greek for dogs. Most dogs in the first century were not domesticated like virtually all dogs are in the 21st century. But there there were some who were domesticated. And so if you remember the Canaanite women in I think it was in Matthew 15, argued that, look, even the crumbs fall from the table and the the little dogs can eat it. And she likened herself to be able to enjoy the, the blessings that God would give to Israel. 
But the word here that he uses for dog is not that kind of word. And if we don't understand it, we won't understand its metaphorical implications. Now, some of you have dogs and you're dog lovers. And you think of your dog almost as having a personality. When my wife and I were away speaking, <laughs> we met this, these two people who had two dogs and baby strollers. And we just had to film this. And, and uh, they, um, I, said, I asked them about their dogs, and they were trying to get their dogs to respond like they were talking to their little children. We put it all on film. My kids laughed. I mean, I wasn't making fun of these people. I'm just telling you how some people think of their animals. I mean, they were in baby strollers, and they had these little outfits on and everything else. Some of us, we think of a dog as something precious, and they can be. I don't doubt that. I've had some wonderful dogs in my lifetime. But the term here is used to describe something that's abominable. Dogs were scavengers for the most part in the first century. They would rummage through garbage dumps. And they did certain things in public that were less than desirable for one to view. I mean, every child sooner or later asks, well, what are they sniffing there? And you know, and you say, well, actually, and oh, that's gross. Interestingly here, when God uses the term dogs, this word in Scripture, and the counterpart in Hebrew that you would see in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it describes a vile, wicked, and unclean person. In fact, it's used in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 18 of a male prostitute, of a homosexual. This is the counter word for abominable in the list we just read in 21 and verse 8. Next, he speaks of those who are sorcerers. The Greek word is pharmakios. You can hear our word pharmacy from it. And so in the New Testament, sorcery is God's word for a drug user, for the illicit use of drugs. And most often in the ancient world, people would use drugs, and in the process they would get involved in the occult. Every person I've met who's been involved in the occult started with drugs. And we want to legalize pot. We got to be out of our minds. Next on the list of those who are outside are the immoral persons. This is the word pornos. We get our word pornography from it. In the New Testament, it's used to refer to someone who practices or promotes any type of sexual activity outside the bonds and blessings of holy matrimony. This would include not only the adulterer, and the fornicator, and the rapist, and the pedophile, but those who produce movies, those who produce Super Bowl halftime shows that are filled with immorality. I sure hope you didn't watch that. Wicked people watch things like that. And I sure hope as dads you're protecting your children These people are outside. Then he notes murderers. These are people who, in a premeditative way, take an innocent life. And yes, it would include the abortionists and the politicians in our day who helped legalize abortion. We have a Democratic Party in this country that promotes the murder of innocent little children. Not to mention the LGBT dog lifestyle that he's already mentioned. Then he speaks of idolaters, those who choose to worship something or someone else, including oneself above the living God. And that will be a mark of the last days. Men will be lovers of self. Then finally adds, and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, Jesus in John 8, refers to the devil as the father of lying because his heart is filled with dishonesty and with deception. Everyone in this room at some point, myself included, have been guilty of lying or exaggeration. But what he's describing here, there are two Greek verbs that are associated with the term here. One is phileo. It speaks of love, of enjoyment, of affection for lying. 
And the other is plao, it speaks of practice. And so putting the two together, he's speaking of one who loves and who practices lying. Such people are outside. He's describing an unbeliever who actually enjoys the process. A true believer could lie, but he hates it. And it's not a way of life. Now, again, this list is not exhaustive. It's simply descriptive. And there are many descriptive kind of lists like this throughout the Bible. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thief, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, he'll then go on to say, but such were some of you. God can save anyone. Or here in Galatians 5, he speaks of people who are outside God's kingdom as immoral, impure, sensual. Then he adds idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, letting you know, again, This is not a complete list, it's representative. And so we find such a list here in verse 15. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. You may be thinking, Pastor Carl has just condemned a whole lot of people to hell. No, I'm just telling you what God said through the Apostle John. Now, every one of us, has been at one point in our life somewhere on this list. But the point of the text is, is the difference between those who are outside and inside are those who are forgiven. And when you are forgiven, you become a new creation and your lifestyle changes. But the person who has not been born again They can get engaged in every single one of these practices that are here. You say, well, who would not want to be forgiven? People who cherish their sin. It's the word agape. We speak of God's love. That's a fallacy, agape love. Because the term is not only used of God's love, it's also used of someone who willfully loves the darkness over the light. Jesus said they won't come to the light. Why? Because they love their sin. It's the same word. It's a willful word. It can be used of God's love, but not exclusively. The person who loves the darkness over the light, Jesus said, they will die in their sin, and where I am going, they cannot come. They'll not go to heaven. Now, remember, we studied it a few weeks ago. Jesus said, many, 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 many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? In your name, perform many miracles. These are people who outwardly identify with the Christian faith, even through some dramatic things, through the preaching of miracles, through the preaching of the message of the gospel. You say, how could an unbeliever do it? It happens all the time, all the time. And we've seen people, even in this year, even some pastors of mega churches that have now defaulted, a Josh Harris among many, and who have now outright denied the faith that we stand for. There are people who make this solemn profession, and Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Lost people can have a full knowledge of the gospel, but not in the heart respond to it. For with the heart, man believes under righteousness. Now listen, if I didn't know whether I was inside or outside, whether God was going to let me into his holy city or not, I would get it fixed today. Because Christ is going to come and it will happen so fast, those who are filthy will stay filthy. Those who are righteous will continue in that righteousness. And if you don't have an assurance in your heart that heaven is yours, you can fix it today in the blink of an eye because it is based on your receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Heaven is made for bankrupt sinners 
who received the forgiveness of God and the new life that can only come by having your robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let's bow in prayer. Now, Father, thank you for the revelation that is given to reveal the Lord Jesus to us in all of his majesty. I pray today for someone who is here who maybe doesn't really know whether or not they're saved. They hope they are. They think they are, but they don't know. And your word would say because they've never really been saved. They've never come by grace through faith. Help them to come on the merits of the cross, to trust Jesus and him alone. Father, help them to see that unless they're willing to call their sins sin, they have no need for a Savior. But thank you that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone today to say, Jesus, save me. And for those of us, Father, who have met you, help us to realize that the clock is going to expire one of these days. Help us to be faithful stewards of the treasure, the gospel treasure that you've given to each and every born-again child of God. Help us to pray and look even this week for opportunities to care for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Thank you for so many who faithfully do that in this fellowship. And may that army grow and increase. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation today. If you're here and you've never publicly, openly, without shame, confessed Jesus as Lord, we want to give you that opportunity now. You can leave your seat and come to this front row. If you've never done that, that's something God asks every child of God to do. And then to be baptized is an emblem of that decision. Maybe you've received Jesus and you've been baptized, but you're tired of floating. You want to do what the New Testament teaches. You want to become a member of a Bible-believing church. I want to invite you to leave your seat as well to meet me here in the front. Matt, lead us. Would you step out now and come?